You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. As I mentioned um, in the past, um, <laughs> these nine Beatitudes are not nine different people. You know, like you can be the meek one and I'll be the pure in heart one. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, no. Um, no, and oh, I want to be the peacemaker, but I don't want to be the persecuted. That's not the way it works. These are all nine different characteristics of the same type of people because they are the people of God. And we are following someone who exemplifies these, the one who is pure in heart, the one who is the peacemaker, the one who is poor, the one who is meek, the humble one and the persecuted one, Jesus Christ himself, and he's describing what it's like in the kingdom and what it's like to be part of his people and how God's kingdom actually works in this world and actually spreads in this world. It is now the largest organization on planet Earth with 2.3 billion people involved in it, growing every day. In some places where there is more persecution, by the way, in some places where things are more difficult, it's growing even faster than in places like the United States. And it's great to see that. So kind of like teacher, like student, like rabbi, like disciple, these words exemplify you and me, and we are living the blessed life when we're living these words. So today we're going to look and speak to the conclusion of the Beatitudes. You can look it up in Matthew 5, verses 9 to 12, where Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So today we're going to look at three points. Usually we do, don't we? It's almost always three points. And even when I do a two-point sermon, it tends to last as long as a three-point sermon. <laughs> I can do five points and still they seem to last about the same. But anyways, the three points are going to be what is peace, what is peacemaking, and then finally, why does peacemaking bring persecution? So you're going to see these one at a time. What is peace? You know, when somebody says, I need a little more peace in my life, what do they mean? What do people typically mean? I calmness. In other words, they're looking at an inner state of being. I need more tranquility in my inner being. Well, that is in the Bible somewhat as an outcome of the real peace, but peace in the Bible is not, peace is not the opposite of anxiety or worry. Peace in the Bible is the opposite of hostility. Peace is always about a relationship and the fact that we are actually at war. And I don't know if you realize that. We have been at war since Genesis chapter 3, and we are at war with God and each other. We are alienated. We are hostile. We're kind of ready to defend ourselves almost at any cost. And that is what is overcome when peace is the end of all wars. The end of all hostilities, the end of all alienation. And that is what it means to have peace. So the Bible is very blunt, and this is fairly offensive to human beings, by the way. I wouldn't be surprised if people go like, wait a minute. 
uh, when, when these Bible verses come out. But this is pretty clear from Genesis 3 all the way through. And I'm just going to pick out a couple from uh, the New Testament letters. But um, we are actually at war with God. That's what the Bible says. Did you realize that? You're hostile to God. I'm hostile, and my natural inclinations are kind of to give God the finger. <laughs> you know, get out of my life. You know, uh, Romans 8, verse 7. And Vicki, I know you memorized all of Romans 8 last year when we went through it at about this time, didn't you? And you remember this. Yeah, well, it's a great, uh, it's a great chapter, Romans 8. We'll get to that again in this next series, okay? But um, Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's our natural state. And again, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this, and you once who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So all human beings are in a state of war against God. That's what the Bible says. And that might just be like, what? Wait a minute. I'll prove it to you. When God did come, vulnerable, touchable, we killed him. We killed him. And he goes, wait, wait, John, what's the we in this? I mean, I wasn't there. And by the way, I don't think I would have been like those people back. You really? Okay. Um, you think you are at tune with God and just are seeking God and everything's good with you. Um, maybe you think you're good with God because your life is going pretty comfortably right now. And we can all feel like we're in tune with God when things are going well. And basically, he's doing things that I want. So I feel at peace with God in those circumstances. But once something goes wrong, wrong in our opinion, bad according to my standards, once things I don't get my way, when I don't like it, when things happen, like it could be a freak accident and all of a sudden I'm left with a giant bill because a tree fell on my house or, um, you know, my car gets vandalized or it could be something much worse. I have a diagnosis or somebody who's close to me all of a sudden has that or something bad happens or I face bankruptcy or I lose my job. You name it, whatever it is. My first inclination isn't to go, praise the Lord. Is yours? Thank you, Jesus. This is much better than I ever anticipated. No, my first inclination is to go to God. What did I do, God, that I deserve? Why to me? You know, I've been a good person. And I start protesting and fighting. Just like, you know, I don't think anyone who's been a parent here, you don't even have to be a parent. You were a child. You tell me you loved everything your parents ever did. And you never were um, a little rebel inside. I was a barbarian. Oh, come on, Hunter. <laughs> I know better. Still a rebel. We're all, we are. We are, you know? OK, so I'm asking you to uncover something today about yourself that's very uncomfortable, something that you don't really want to know, something I don't want to admit. And that is that I have enmity toward God. Oh, I think I'm being reasonable when I have it. I think I know what's best. I think it's just me having an argument with God, you know, kind of like trying to box him out of changing his mind. But still, um, I have an enmity towards what God wants. Now, how do I know? Because I've been envious. 
of others. You know what envy is? It's hostility toward God. It's basically saying, why are you giving them all the honor and praise? Why did they get all the stuff and I don't, God? That's enmity, another form of it. Or how about um, maybe you've been depressed or sad or just like really down in life, and um, that's enmity toward God. I don't know if you realize that, because you had expectations of what you think your life should be like and how everything should just be flowing, and then it doesn't, and then it's like, this sucks. My life is not that good. Anybody ever said that? Um, during COVID? <laughs> Come on. Or um, apathy. Do you realize that is even enmity toward God? Because God has filled life for joy and purpose and meaning and excitement. And, th and, and we are like, eh, not so much. I don't really care about anything. This world kind of is blah. That's enmity toward how God had created this world in the first place. And if you've ever broken one of God's laws, okay, <laughs> that's not much of an if, right? Um, that's enmity. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Well, somehow I think the law shouldn't apply to me. Now, you should be following it, Allie, but I don't have to, you know? So... When I'm gossiping about others, I'm basically saying, God, I know my evaluation. I mean, I think I've got better evaluations of people than you do. I, I think, you know, I know how, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm right about this. That's enmity. Or how about um, plagiarism? Any college students ever kind of, hmm, just, you know, or takes it? And it's basically saying, you know, um, the grade is more important than whatever I learn, and those rules are stupid anyways. Do you understand how this works? I am at war with God. And here's the thing. These are the easy ones to see. You know, the hardest probably one to see is this. Religion. Religion is probably the biggest way humanity has been at enmity with God from the beginning and is hostile. And you're going like, what? We are at war with God in religion the way that religions are set up. Because religion is not this wonderful, pure spiritual quest and I'm trying to get better. Religion is me trying to get God off my back. To get God to do what I want him to do. Well, if I follow this and if I do this, then God, you owe me one. Religion is my deal making to try to get God on my side, to negotiate with the enemy who is God, to get him to agree with me to do it my way. And that's, if you look at the heart of what religion is, religion is the human attempt to get something on God, to get them, God, to do what I want, to play that game, my will. And most religious people in Jesus' day, historically, were the ones that showed the most enmity toward God himself. You know, just think about it. The Sanhedrin, the high priests, the Pharisees, they were the ones, in the end, who wanted Jesus dead. And then they manipulated the whole political system they could to get it to happen. And don't take it out on the religious leaders. Because even Jesus' disciples, the, quote, besties, the friends of Jesus, they all fled and left when he needed them most. And here is probably the last point, and I know I've nailed this one down so much, and you're just like, okay, can we move on? Um, even my protesting that, wait a minute, I'm not that, I'm not really angry with God, shows me that I really am. 
I know that sounds weird because I am not accepting what God's word clearly says at the beginning, that my sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not accept God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's what Romans 8, 7 says. And I'm saying, no, I don't believe that. I'm okay. That's enmity right there. And here's the reality check. And here's a main point that you have to understand because it's very clear, and this, this may be the one thing I want you to understand this morning along with the gospel in just a minute, but it's this. Unless you admit that you are at war with God, you cannot have peace. Unless you admit you are at war with God, you will never have peace in your life. You'll always be playing the games. You'll always be trying to get God off your back. You're always going to try to manipulate the system. You're always going to be chasing around. It's when you finally admit, ooh, that's me. While we were rebels, while we were sinners, not when we thought we were good, but while we were the worst, God did his best in Jesus. That's the only time I get peace. But, you know, I just hate to admit that. Do you not hate to admit? I don't want to admit I've been an enemy of God, that I don't like him, I don't love him, I don't want him. I want to be him instead, take his place. So how in the world, then, do we get peacemaking? How is peace made if that's my natural, defiant, rebellious state? And that's our second point. What is peacemaking? We're going to go back to that verse that I shared at the beginning from Colossians chapter 1, where it, it, Paul says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now. Who has? God has now reconciled. How? In his body of flesh by his death. Jesus Christ has brought about your peace through his death in his body. He's the peacemaker. You know, when we talk about trying to bring peace in this world right now, what do we do? We send in the troops, we send in the tanks, or we go to the ballot box. We think either ballots or bullets are going to bring peace, and God says neither. Neither. Jesus is the one who comes behind enemy lines, and even as an infant, a helpless when he was powerless as a little baby, that he didn't even speak a word out of his mouth. Already the powers that be, King Herod, hated him and wanted him dead. And he fled, his parents fled for his life. And the rest of his human existence, we were out to get him, just like Herod. And Jesus was never protected, by the way, by some kind of holy Kevlar jacket around him. He didn't have an army of angels that were just, you know, always smoting people whenever they disagreed with him. <laughs> He's smoting the right, smiting, sm smitten, smitten, smite. He didn't smite people, right? Yeah. And um, there's no Holy Spirit force field, you know. It's not like he could walk anywhere and nothing could kind of penetrate through that. And we know that because he gets hungry, he is tempted, he feels pain, he is hurt, he is rejected, he is saddened, he weeps. He experiences the betrayals and rejections of his closest friends. He was invulnerable to every hurt that came his way. And then he doesn't protect himself either. 
by playing the political games and schmoozing a bunch of people and trying to look good and trying to win the popular vote. He speaks truth to power and he walks into the temple, the religious center of that time and day, and he turns over the table and tells it like it is. He speaks truth to power, but not in a way where he protects himself. He didn't bring in an army with him. He didn't ride on a war horse, but a donkey. Do you get what's going on here? And he knew what would happen as a result. He knew it was going to cost him his life. But he also knew that doing that would bring peace. Because that's the only way peace is brought to this world. Because God himself has to take care of our hostility. We would never do it. And so this is how he says it in Colossians chapter 2. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its illegal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rules and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So Jesus forgives us as he is nailed to the cross. And as he is nailed to the cross, all the guilt, all the hostility, all the anger is vented out on him. And he dies for everyone. He dies for all. He wins the victory even over the powers and authorities in the spiritual world so that nothing can come in the way of his love for you. Nothing can get in the way of the peace that he has brought to you. Nothing. And you are no longer alienated from him, but you are his. He is your friend and therefore you are his friend. That's how the peacemaker did it. And then he says to you, blessed are the peacemakers. You're going to be called sons of God, just like me. So how does peacemaking look for us? What is peacemaking for us? I love this passage from the prophet Isaiah. It's in chapter 52. I think it's a great passage that explains what peacemaking really is. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. We are peacemakers when we announce the reign of God through Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins. Another word is the gospel. You see the gospel, salvation, and peace all go together in this passage. And that's what's going on. So evangelism, sharing Jesus with others, is peacemaking in this world at its finest. Peacemaking, announcing that good news, letting them know who Jesus the King is, that he's ready to make peace with them, that he has made peace for them, that they are no longer at war with God and no longer need to be at war, alienated from them, that God is not angry with them, that God is not ready to punish them, that God is not ready to smite them, smote them, smitten them, whatever, right? But that God has already taken and been stricken, smitten, and afflicted himself for them. Sometimes evangelism is very explicit where you talk about it, and sometimes it's just extending love to your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. Peace is the end of all wars with God and with others. It's no more war, no more conflict, no more competition, 
No more rivalries. And Christians extend the peace that we have received with God to everyone else. I don't need to push people down to build myself up anymore. I don't need to blame others to justify my existence. I don't need to excuse my own issues. All the hostility I'd have for God or for anyone else goes away. There's no need for it anymore. So I love how Justin Martyr said it. Now, Justin Martyr uh, lived about a generation after the apostles. He's, he, he was born around 100 AD. He lived till 165. And he writes this. We ourselves were well conversant with war, murder, and everything evil. But all of us throughout the whole wide world, earth have traded in our weapons of war. We have exchanged our swords for plowshares, our spears for farm tools. Now we cultivate the fear of God, justice, kindness, faith, and the expectation of the future given us through the crucified one. The more we are persecuted and martyred, the more do others in ever-increasing numbers become believers. Blessed are you. You're a peacemaker. You are a child of God. Now, um, why does peacemaking bring persecution? That's the third question. You might go like, does it have to? Really? Ouch. Now, notice I said Justin Martyr. Martyr was not his last name. He was called Justin Martyr because he became a martyr. He was murdered. He was put to death for his Christian faith in 165 AD. And by the way, our son Justin, one of the, um, Justin Martyr's the role model. I know, he does <laughs> Yeah, ooh, yeah, the martyr, right? But our son Justin, I thought that's a great name because Justin Martyr, you know? A good role model of the faith who is willing to say, I believe in, you know, I'm going to love my enemies and pray for those who even persecute me and even kill me. That is the way to live, Jesus is saying. Now, um, when you bring the message of God's peace and God's reign to people, their first reaction often isn't, great, thanks. I recall, especially I think I've shared this one, um, there was a, a man named Robert when I was at seminary who was the most religious person I've ever met. He came onto the campus to start studying, and then he was just, just a tormented soul because he was trying to find a system that worked for his life. He didn't like what I had to share with him. I met with him. I brought in a friend as well because I wasn't sure how this would go. And we sat down, and I shared with him the gospel of peace, the fact that Jesus Christ forgives you, reconciles you, um, Etc. He puts to death your old nature, raises you up to new nature, and he looks at me and says, now wait a minute. You're telling me the last 20 years of my life, everything that I've been doing is just a crock of manure? That's, that's the reaction to the gospel of peace. Wait a minute. I'm good enough. I should be good enough. I've been pretty good. I'm, why would God... Do you understand that? That's our hostility. But we, and that's why persecution comes. It's because we don't then turn around and say, wait, wait a minute, and we start, you know, boxing them verbally, nor physically, nor protecting ourselves. We extend, like Jesus did, love and mercy and grace and are vulnerable to even their pains and agonies. And sometimes that brings persecution both sometimes on a national or international scale to a very personal scale, it can happen. 
Unless you are admitting that you are at war with God, you cannot have peace. And that's the last thing we want to do. Now, here's a few points about persecution. First of all, Jesus never says, go out and try to get persecuted. Okay? It's not your goal in life to get persecuted. And secondly, if you are, quote, persecuted, it might not be because of your faith in Jesus Christ. It might be because you're just being a jerk. You know, I have been treated poorly sometimes in life because I have been a kind of an egotistical, self-centered, you know, person. I cannot blame God or call that righteous persecution. Now, on the other hand, if I never face opposition in life, does not mean that I'm just so nice and everybody just loves me because love is not often returned with love. No, it might be because I'm just not courageous at all. I'm a coward, and I can't stand up for the truth in any circumstance. Soren Kierkegaard, I think, said it well. He said that true love is not loved and returned. It is hated, spit upon, and crucified. And so sometimes that's what happens. Historically, it happened to Jesus, and sometimes it happens to us. But you're not following Jesus because peacemaking is easy. And you're not following Jesus because peacemaking is nice. And it's not because it's an advantageous thing to follow Jesus because it's convenient and it's comfortable and wonderful. You're following Jesus because he's the only king you'd ever want. Because he's the only ruler who ever actually serves you without limit. He's the only one who's bled and died for you. There is not a religious leader, there's not a political leader that has substituted his life or her life for you. No one but this one, Jesus. Right now I know our world is filled with bullies and bullets. And you might think the only way you can protect yourself is to arm yourself to the teeth, to brace yourself from all the chaos, to kind of hide and hunker down or whatever. And you might even find preachers that are kind of talking that way these days and saying, this is what's coming and you better brace yourself. You better be ready for it. But I dare say you better look also in God's word and you tell me where in the Bible, in the words of Jesus, in the New Testament, it ever says that Jesus says, you better protect yourself, brace yourself and arm yourself to the teeth. I can't find anything like that. What I find is that Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He doesn't want you to be. The only way peace is going to be breaking out in this world is for sheep to go out in the midst of wolves. If you go out as another wolf, <laughs> you're not going to win anyone over with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But recall this, too. In the book of Revelation, the image that we have of the one who is on the throne, that is, the one who reigns, the one who is in charge of everything, is the lamb who was slain. The lamb who is sacrificed. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one who reigns by forgiving and loving and sacrificing all. His is the kingdom that is the everlasting kingdom. You already have his victory. You already have eternal life. You already are in the kingdom. You are blessed. And that is the blessed life. I know it would be easy today to say, this world is filled with a lot of mean people and I'm just going to have to. But Jesus is calling us 
to follow him, to be peacemakers, because we are his children. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Be glad. Your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the peace God has for you. Now, right now, at this point in time, I don't know if people who are online, who are watching or might watch in the future, um, have you admitted that you've been at war with God in your life? Have you been able to say, yeah, you know what? I've been angry with him. I haven't wanted him. I wanted to rule. That's, the, that's, that's kind of a necessary step. It's called repentance. It's called letting go. And God has the peace, because he's already won it for you. He's already offered it to you. He's already died for you. Receive this, the King of Kings, the only one, the only one who reigns through love. Let's pray together right now. Lord God, um, thank you, Jesus, for these words of what the kingdom looks like how you've invited us in, that you have set your kingdom up so differently than any political or military or economic way this world is set up, Lord God, that your kingdom is the everlasting kingdom and your reign is forever. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We thank you that it's so different than what we see. We are so refreshed by your love and mercy and grace in our lives. Lord, we have been at enmity with you. I still, Lord, have that old nature that still wants to fight you from day to day. But today, we let go. We surrender again. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've given us. You are the king of hearts, the king of love, the king that gave up everything, crowned with thorns, and now you reign forever. Lord God, as that king of peace, Make us uh, proclaimers of your good news and peacemakers in a, a very unjust and turbulent society as we see around us. We see the hostility, Lord, between people. We see the warfare. We also see, Lord, just the coercion and the manipulation as well. In one way or another, everybody's trying to win when you've already won the victory for us. Help us to share that peace with others, Lord God, that it breaks through all of the armor that we have uh, put around ourselves to protect ourselves. And let us, Lord, be loved by you and then love others as you have loved us. Lord God, we lift up a few individuals in our church today asking for your healing touch upon them, for Andrea Blankenship, as she will travel in just over a week up to Moffat in Tampa for a consultation and for um, some more tests. And we pray, Lord, for a clinical trial that she can, um, well, that she qualifies for and that, that you work effectively through it as the, her healer, her Lord and Savior. We know she's at peace with you through all of this, that she knows that you are in charge and your will is good and gracious. We pray that we get to see it and we get to rejoice with her, with Jeff, the family, and all.
We lift up to you as well Bill Watson, who underwent surgery this week, and we await, Lord, now his test results from that. We pray, Lord God, for your healing there to strengthen him. We thank you, Lord, for the college students in our campus ministry. It's a tough time to actually even connect and get together, but we're praying, Lord, that you can work exceeding and abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine that this week for Hunter and for Brooke and for the college student leaders who are here today and those watching online, Lord, that you would just bless their efforts on the campus and on, online as well at FGCU and do amazing things, Lord according to your will. We pray, Lord, uh, for our schools, for our teachers. Lord, we pray for um, our first responders, for the medical care workers, Lord, for everyone on the front lines right now in one form or another as we are trying to negotiate how best to open up, how best to instruct, how best to be involved. We pray, Lord, that your protection and the peace that passes all human understanding would guard and keep our minds in you, Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Lord God, um, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you are doing in our lives. Teach us again and again to let go and let you be God and we be yours, your children. That blessed are the peacemakers, for we are called children of God. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.